Who asked to go out first? Oh, should we tell him? Go ahead. Uh, we were, I sat behind him in our English class, and one day over his shoulder comes a note. I like two girls, you and Chris. Which one should I go with? <laughs> I wrote me, crossed out Chris, and <clears throat> tossed it back. <laughs> There's one thing that I, I think is key to a, a good Christian marriage is forgiveness. Without forgiveness and the spirit of forgiveness, it's impossible to love. Love is what comes from forgiveness. And before we can love one another, we must be able to forgive and forget. And I think we've tried to do that in our marriage. One of the key things, I think, in a relationship is to be kind to one another. And those little tiny acts of kindness grow into a big pile, a good pile of things. Every day looking for that way to serve is so incredibly important because over time that starts to build up to be a normalcy of your marriage and you just, you're always finding ways to serve because marriage is not 50-50, marriage is 100-100. We don't hold grudges. And we don't expect perfection. Amen. And that's why we've been so happy. <laughs> the first thing that comes to my mind as far as speaking to a young couple would be to watch your expectations. Go into it with a heart of how can I complete the other person, not how can the other person serve me. Go into it knowing the role of, of a husband and wife from a biblical perspective. I think it's important to uh, read the word together. Prayer together, meals together. Marriage is kind of like two sinners committing to stay together till one of you dies. And if you love somebody more... Why'd you look at me when you said somebody dies? Cause, oh, okay. Because <laughs> you're the other sinner in this group. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, but seriously, if if... You love God more than you love me, and if you are kind, then all the other things that come into marriage, you can work through them. God knew what he was doing when we put us together, I'll tell you, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah we had, we've had our ups and downs, I'll tell you. But uh, through it all, victory. There is a ton of wisdom in that short video um, and a rather bold move by Lee Rick. Am I right? Like the old, like, I like two girls. <laughs> I was just trying to think, like, how that would have gone, Sherry. Like, yeah, I think my name would have been scratched out. And yeah, uh, I would have been hit in the head with the paper. But um, we, uh, I want you to think for a moment about a couple of marriage that you have seen in your life um, that you look at and, and, and the sort of marriage that you think like, man, that's, that's what I would love my relationship to look like. So if you're single and you think like uh, someday I if I get married, I would love it to look like this. Or if you're married and you're thinking like, um, 
Uh, when when we grow in our relationship, I'd love it to look like this. Maybe you're you're maybe you're married and you're looking at your relationship and you're thinking like, man, this isn't what I wanted it to be. And and it's couples that you emulate. I I have the tremendous blessing of having a lineage of people who have modeled to me loving, faithful marriage. Um, all four of my grandparents stayed married um, throughout their lives until their spouses passed away. My parents were married for over 40 years until my dad passed away. And, and I just had people that loved their spouses well and modeled that to me. And one of, as much as they, I have multiple examples of great marriage. One that has powerfully influenced me in my life has been my grandma and grandpa Dininger, uh, my mom's parents. Um, one, like even when my, when I was a kid, it's like, I would see my grandparents like flirt. Like they just love to kind of like flirt, um, and be romantic with each other. And it, it was, it was a cute, you know, it was just like, you could tell, like they genuinely loved each other. I watched my grandpa when my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, become her primary caregiver. And if you're familiar at all with that diagnosis, if you've been around that somewhat, um, you know that it can be an exhausting task um, as you watch somebody deteriorate. And even to the point when my grandma's personality began to change, um, the person that my grandfather had fallen in love with, um, it seemed like that was diminishing. And yet he was there by her side, loving her, caring for her, doing all the repetitive things constantly. And it was just this picture to me of, of faithfulness and of the true sort of ideal of of love. And when you see something like that, when you've been influenced by something like that, you, you innately kind of ask the question, like, how? Like, how do you achieve something like this? How is that possible? We have been studying together over these last few weeks, uh, Peter's first letter to the followers of Jesus who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. We've been looking now at the middle part of this letter where where Peter is instructing the church on how to live in such a way that people see our lives, and when they see our lives, they're, they're seeing Jesus. Particularly, in, in Peter's context, he's, he's doing this in four people. And, and again, if you, when we read this letter, suffering, we'll talk more about this next week, this is a theme that runs throughout this letter. He's, he's writing this to a group of people that are living under unjust relationships, whether that's government or the relationship between a bondservant or, or uh, in, this, in the master or in this context, what he's going to talk about today, this uh, in a marriage, um, where, where one person might be following the ideals of Jesus and come to that conviction, and, and perhaps the other person is not. And so let's, I want to look at, um, I want to jump back a bit into 1 Peter chapter 2, because I want to look at kind of Peter's overarching thesis for this whole, the whole section of the letter. So this is what he writes to the church in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So again, he roots our sense of um, understanding and identity in this this. Um, idea of foreigners and exiles, meaning like this is not our home. This is not where this is not where we are, where our purpose and our identity find themselves. Then verse 12, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter here, to this group of people who are facing very difficult circumstances, who are asking themselves all kinds of questions about how do we live this out and what does this look like and, and, and what should our response be to this oppressive government that's over us or to a, a master who is mistreating us as a bondservant. And, and they're wondering, do we, do we go set aside a separate community? Do we go set aside a commune and we all do life there? And, and, or do we just run? Do we just get out of here? Or do we fight back? Do we push back against the forces? And, and Peter sort of circles up the body of believers and, and he's like, here's the plan. It's like a trick play. We're going to submit. Like they're never going to see this coming, right? Like this is his, his, his instruction over and over and over again. So last week, Joe was here and he talked about the, this radical vision that Peter is giving the church. He talked about it in those first two contexts. Relationship with government and the relationship between the servant and their master. And so if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back, watch Joe's sermon, because so much of this thought line progresses into what we're going to look at today and, and, if Peter, and the vision that Peter is articulating to the church. And now he's going to continue to develop this same instruction, this same plan, if you will, in the context of marriage. And so Peter's, Peter's direction to the followers of Jesus is that a surrendered life to Christ enables us to live surrendered lives to each other. Let me say that again. A surrendered life to Christ enables us to live surrendered lives to each other. So we're going to, I'm going to back up a little bit into what Joe taught last week, and then we're going to start to look at the beginning of chapter three, where Peter speaks into um, the relationship of wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives. This is verse chapter 2, verse 21. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should come not from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of golden jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that your inner self, be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, 
Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. How you doing? Right? It's, it's okay to acknowledge that, that these verses, this passage, it, it, in, a, in our culture, this falls roughly on our ears at times, particularly if, if you are a woman, and we'll talk more about that. But it's also important for us to recognize that what we wrestle with as, as the body of Christ, as the church, is that we believe that God's word is authoritative to our lives. And so the work that we have to do is to try to seek to understand what it is that Peter is teaching the church, and then talk about how this teaching then impacts and affects our own ever efforts to live such good lives, and using Peter's words, that people see Jesus. And so as we unpack this together, I, I, we have to start at the point of understanding and viewing what it is that Peter has just told us about Jesus. And, and I'm thinking of this as empowered submission. Empowered submission, which almost feels to us like an oxymoron. And both in both Peter's instructions to the wife and to the husband, Peter uses the phrase in the same way. In the same way as what? Right? In the same way that he just pointed us to. In the way that Jesus has surrendered, has laid down his rights, given his life in this act of submission. I've made no bones about the fact that in, in my life, I have not always been the best or the most committed to like healthy choices, right? I, um, I like go through waves where I'm kind of like, I'm going to do better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat better. I'm going um, to exercise and all these sorts of things. And they're usually relatively short-lived and end in utter defeat. But that's a separate point. Um, but if you've ever done this where you start to kind of really like take in more healthier food, when if you fall off the wagon, so to speak, and you go back to eating some of the same junk food that you used to eat, like, how do you feel? Like, gross, right? Which you would think would make me say I should go back to the previous thing. But I push through the grossness, and I get back to, the, <laughs> to what I'm used to. But if you, in the, in the same vein, like, if you, are, if you have something challenging in front of you, right, whether that's physically or, or mentally, whatever it is, and you have just eaten a bunch of garbage... Like, how do you feel if you then go for a run? Like you, you feel weak, right? You feel like, I don't have inside of me what it takes to, to meet the challenge in front of me. You feel overwhelmed and, and unable to because that which is inside of you, that which you are drawing power from, is not equal to the task of the ask of what is in front of you. So Peter roots this entire conversation for the life of the believer in the example of Jesus. Because anything that, that lacks the weight and the ability of, of Christ's example to us will lack the power to live out the vision that Peter is articulating for the church, what he's prescribing to us. So this whole conversation begins with Jesus, and I want to just... I want to point out two things here that Peter does. First, note that, that Peter cites specifically to the church the example of Jesus. He reminds us of the example of Jesus. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. If you've, if you've been around here for a while, um, you've likely heard me talk about what we do as a church, what we're attempting to do in the terms of living as an apprentice of Jesus, that our lives are this apprenticeship to Jesus. It's Dallas Willard's terminology for the way he describes the process of discipleship. We're patterning our lives after him because we are apprentices of him. So Peter here says plainly, he gives us the same call, everything that he wants to teach the church about this idea of submission, the practice of submission, is modeled to us by Jesus. Later in, in Peter's second letter, he says it this way, this idea of living as an apprentice of Jesus. He talks about it as growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, our example, it is his willingness to submit himself to the will of the Father. They're, they are equals. They are both fully God that would ultimately result for him in an act of submission being taken to the cross. In fact, more than that, Peter reminds us that Jesus, in his innocence, would allow a human authority to pronounce judgment over him. You remember that conversation that Jesus has with Pilate? That, that faux trial? Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus responds to him in John chapter 19. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Like Jesus is saying, let's be clear about what's going on right here. This is not your act of power over me. This is me willingly laying myself. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, willingly stands before a corrupt politician, allows him to cast judgment over him, even to the point of death. Jesus is modeling, exemplifying submission to us. And Peter reminds us intentionally and specifically of his example because he's saying we're, this is what we're replicating as his apprentices, as followers of Jesus. And then secondly, Jesus or, or Peter reminds us that, that this example of Jesus, that we are the benefactors of Jesus' submission. We are the benefactors. Verse 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Right? So Peter is saying, don't forget that you are the recipients of this. This was done for your salvation. So we as a people, if you've placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he's saying we as a group of people who've been moved from death to life, from, from um, guilty to found innocent in the blood of Jesus, we've been moved from, from that. It says we have, that has been accomplished because Jesus willingly submitted on our behalf. We're the, we're the benefactors. I mean, it was done for us. And so Peter now begins to describe and unpack what this looks like in the context of, of marriage. And so he describes what I'm going to talk about today as a surrendered marriage. A surrendered marriage. Imagine for a moment, 
Um, if, if you are just a couple living in the first century in Galatia, you and your family uh, regularly go to the temple of the pagan god Zabinos to worship as your practice. It's been the practice of people around you for uh, your entire life. One day, the wife in this relationship, while she is in Galatia, begins to hear some people talk about this Jewish rabbi that, that they're saying that he was crucified on a Roman cross, but that three days later the grave was empty and that in doing all of this, he did it so that, that her sins could be forgiven. In fact, this message is so compelling that she seeks out more and she eventually responds in faith. She puts her faith in Jesus. She starts to hear people teach about the kingdom of God, about how it's different than any kingdom she's ever seen or ever known. And she starts to live under this idea of that, that Jesus is her ultimate authority. And, and she wants to live out this kingdom vision around her and, and with the people that she loves. And yet her husband isn't there yet. In fact, he... He not only continues to worship at the pagan temple, but his expectation is that she's going to be there with him, as is his expectation for, for the entire household. And so she's asking herself a million questions. What now? What does my newfound faith in Jesus mean for my relationship with my husband? Right? How, am I supposed to leave him? Am I, how am I supposed to model, live out, talk to him about what Jesus, this transforming conviction that's changed her life, how am I supposed to represent this to my husband who seems so resistant? Right For the church, this is all new territory. And Peter here, as he's speaking into this situation, he comes back to the same playbook that he talked about when we talked about living as a citizen under Roman authority, living as a bondservant under the master of the house. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to submit. Look again at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Peter writes this. He says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, before we move on here, it's important as we look at this passage, I think to acknowledge and understand that this passage and other passages like it have been used um, in the context of church history and, and at times in the church to subjugate women, to put them in a lower place. Um, it can be demeaning to suggest that they're inferior and at times it's even been used as a justi justification for abuse. And, and we, have to, we have to point out, we have to say in no uncertain terms that that is an absolute distortion of Peter's message, and it's completely incompatible with the gospel. It, it must be denounced in the strongest terms because that's, that is sin, and it should be confessed as such. In fact, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you are in a, an abusive relationship, I want you to know that as the church, we have resources to come alongside you, and we want to do that. 
Um, we, we, would, we have a congregational care department that can help um, partner you with a therapist. We have people who are experienced and gifted in marriage counseling. We can help look at the situation and how to respond in the midst of that. We want to love you well. If you ever find yourself, you should not be alone in that situation. And, and the church has resources to come alongside of you and to support you. It's also important to recognize that as Peter writes this letter, he's writing primarily to those, again, that we've talked about, who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus when they're living under an authority of someone who does not share their convictions. They don't share this vision of, of God's kingdom. So in, in each of the three instances that, that Peter cites, there's, there's this power gap that exists between the government and the citizen between the master and the bondservant. And in a patriarchal culture, it was nobody challenged that reality, where the authority resided, who had the power in the relationship. Everyone knew that. They lived under that. So then how do we reflect Jesus in the midst of, of this situation? And Peter goes back to, to what he's been teaching all along. We, we don't withdraw. We don't run and hide from it. In fact, we don't fight back. He says we, we submit. And I, and I think what Peter's doing here is I think he is taking, he, he is shifting our understanding of the power gap. Because I think what he's saying where society looks and says, hey, as a citizen, you have a massive power gap with the, the governing authorities. Or as a bondservant, there's a power gap. Or as a wife living in a patriarchal society, there is a power gap. But he's saying, but you are in Jesus. He's talking to the followers of Jesus. So he's saying, spiritually, you've been made full in Jesus. You have been given everything that you need for life and well-being in Jesus. So he's saying, I want you to understand your position as as actually having an authority, a power surplus in, in this relationship. So our, our immediate reaction, again, to this text, oftentimes, if you're anything like me, is that this is somewhere between feeling hopelessly antiquated to maybe offensive or even degrading. But I, I want to suggest that a closer look, Peter is giving us a much bigger vision of, of marriage and relationship and a much bigger vision of what freedom of Christ look like. Freedom of Christ looks like in deference to others. And so this is where, where I want to unpack this a bit. And there's a couple things that I, I think are important for us to identify as we talk about this. And the first is simply that the New Testament roots Christian relationship in mutual submission. The New Testament talks about our relationships as a whole in this idea of mutual submission. Verse 17 of chapter 2, Peter says it this way. He says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. To use Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 5, he says it this way. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, and immediately goes from then into talking about the relationship between the husband and a wife. So he grounds our, the nature of our relationships when we are under Christ as our ultimate Lord is one of mutual submission to each other. 
It's how we view relationships as a whole. To those who have been fulfilled, who've been made complete in Christ, we have the freedom to live in mutual submission to each other. Which brings me to the next point. And that is simply that surrendered living or biblical submission isn't a sign of weakness, but rather of strength. I think this is most clearly evidenced in what Paul or what Peter wrote about Jesus. Right? His his submission is not the result of a power gap between himself and the authorities that would crucify him. Now it was it was Jesus who held the power in that situation and it was his great love for us that caused him to willingly lay down his life. This is this is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. In Jesus, because of Jesus, we live surrendered lives to him and surrendered lives to each other. In fact, one of my favorite and, and most formative passages that um, in all of Scripture is found in, in Philippians chapter 2. Paul, Paul captures this idea this way. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Paul is grounding our understanding of what this looks like in the incarnation itself. It's God himself and his efforts to redeem us would lower himself, not only to, to becoming one of us, but all the way to death, death on a cross, he says. He's saying this, that living a surrendered life for the benefit of those around us isn't weakness, it's a power move. It's a power move. Thirdly, then, a surrendered life seeks to elevate, not diminish. It elevates not diminishes. Look what he says here in verse 7. This is when, when Peter uh, addresses the husbands. And what's different here, when, when Paul talks about some of these same things, he will typically come at it and he'll look at it from both sides. So for instance, like when he's talking to parents and children, he will say, okay, from this side, when you're under authority, children, this is how you should live. Parents, you have a responsibility with this authority. He does the same thing when he talks about bondservants and masters he, and, and, uh, and husbands and wives. Well, Peter is, is primarily doing something different here. He is speaking specifically to people in the church who are suffering as a result of, of um, being in a power structure where they do not share this faith in Jesus. So he's saying, this is how you live faithfully in the midst of this. This is how we follow the example of Christ. And so here he, he does, he, unlike the other two examples, he now does say something to the husband. Whether, whether this is strictly the case of saying, okay, if you are a, a believing husband, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, or if this is a husband who is in a relationship where the wife has not come to faith in Jesus, he's, he's got instructions for them as well. And he says this, he says, be considerate as you live with your wife. This is back in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs, 
with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Right? Even there in the instruction to the husband, though, it feels a little like uneven, right? But let's look at what he's saying. When he teaches the husband to be considerate of his wife, that, that the Greek there literally means to be a student of. Rather, so the idea being that as we live, if I live in deference, surrendered life to Christ, living in a surrendered li life with my wife, in order to do that well, that requires me to know her, to be intentional. So any sense of like passivity, Peter is rejecting that. He's saying this is, I, you husbands are intentionally elevating her. And he says this, he says, respect her as the weaker partner, which again, that might fall harshly on your ears, but in Peter is addressing a culture, a context, where nobody would have questioned that. Wives, women were largely treated as more or less property. So all the rights, all of the privilege, all of that resided strictly in, in the male role in the home. And so what Peter is instructing the husband to do is he's saying, you, you use this position that you have in order to elevate, to respect that word, is, is uh, other places it's translated honor. This is the same Greek word that, that Peter just told us on how we should approach and think about the emperor. He's saying, this is how you should treat your wife. You should acknowledge her worth and value that I have placed in her as an image bearer of, of her creator. God, you recognize that in, in um, push back against what the culture might say. In fact, that phrase, the weaker vessel, again, like Paul's acknowledging the gap here. He's, he's acknowledging the difference, and he's saying, you husbands, lay down your rights. Use your privilege to elevate them. And you should do this because this is exactly what Jesus has done for you. In fact, we don't have time today to, to do this, but if we had time, if we were to comb through the New Testament, the Gospels, look at every interaction that Jesus has with women. He is constantly in, in conflict with the culture around him, elevating them, their position in society, speaking words of grace and of value and of worth. Like, go comb through that. And again, Peter's saying, this is our model. This is our example. In fact, he says that they are heirs with the gracious gift of life, that heirs, they are equals they are equal partners in God's gift of new life. Paul writes this, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we surrender our lives to Christ, he empowers us by his grace and mercy to surrender our lives to each other, to elevate and not diminish. In fact, when Peter and, and Paul both write about this, they talk in it about such a way that the empowered lives to Christ being lived out to each other is, it's a picture of the gospel on display, which is, which is our third thing here, and that is the, a transformative result. A transformative result. When Sherry and I were first married, um, we had one car, it was a 1987 Honda Prelude. Uh, I thought that car was so cool at the time. Uh, Moonroof, and it was just like, 
but it was always falling apart. Um, and we were broke. Uh, we had no money to go buy a new car, and we really didn't have any money to, to pay somebody else to fix that car. And so I was constantly, whether it was in the parking spot at our first apartment or when we got a house in the driveway, I was constantly out there trying to work on, on any number of our cars. And what I would do is I'd go to the library and I would, I would check out this book. And they, you could get a book for the specific make and model and year of your car. And then it would give you instructions on, on how to make the repair you needed to make. But the problem was is there's like a whole car language that you had to use. So it would direct you to go find a certain part. But I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that is, right? Like, like I needed a book to tell me what the book was saying. But the game changer was when YouTube came out. And you, like, I don't know if you've done this, but you can literally go find about anything, any make and model of car, and you can find somebody who's fixed it and done the repair that you need to do. And for me, the difference was I could see it. I could understand it because I could see a tangible example of what needed to be done, what it looked like. And see, this is the vision that Peter is laying in front of the church. In fact, look at verses 3 and 4 again. Peter writes this, he says, Your beauty should not come from your outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should come from your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And again, these verses have been misunderstood and misapplied so many times right this is this is not about an unbelieving wife and how she makes herself attractive to her husband in fact i would argue that in and peter is making an application here that could be used regardless of gender whether to a husband to her unbelieving wife or to a wife to her unbelieving husband Peter is saying this isn't about how you make yourself attracted to them. This is how you live in such a way that attracts them to Jesus, that draws them to him. Peter isn't trying to put women in their place here. He's not trying to silence them. He's reminding them that the gentleness and compassion of Jesus is the very thing that ushered him, them into an understanding of what he has done on their behalf. And it's that same power that, that can convince their husbands or their unbelieving spouse of the same thing. For anybody that we love, anybody that we, we interact with, anybody that we have influence on, it's Peter's instructing us to essentially to show them Jesus. In fact, Gary, um, or Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he says this, he says, lowly gentleness is not just one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. P Peter is teaching us as his followers what it looks like to image the reflect or to image the character of Jesus, to reflect him to people. And the purpose is, is stated, right? So that they may be won over. This is his desire. This is his goal. This is the game plan. Our faithfulness to Christ, lives lived out in surrender and in respect and deference to our spouses and to other people in our lives may be the most powerful proclamation of the gospel that, that anyone around us ever sees or hears. 
And we get a chance to live that out most purposefully with those and to those that, we're mo- that we have closest proximity to. To our spouses, to our kids, to our families, to our coworkers and our neighbors. And, and Peter and Paul both talk about how when this is happening simultaneously, when you have two people living surrendered lives under the authority of Jesus, also living surrendered lives to each other, he says it's not just a picture of a great marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for the church. People see it. It's invitational. That there's something there that, that they want to know more about. So for Peter in all of this, he's saying this isn't, this isn't weakness. This is the power of Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that um, we can come to a text that um, is challenging and is, is hard to even think about how do we apply this and what does this look like. And Lord, we want as your apprentices to live under the lordship of Jesus in our lives, under the authority of your word and in love and respect and in submission to each other. So God, give us a vision of of what this looks like so that people, when they see our lives, when they see the, the love and care that we demonstrate in our marriages, in our homes, and in relationship to each other would ultimately see you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.